Hi, and welcome to a special edition of The Empire Strikes Back. We're going to do something a little bit different uh, for the next couple of episodes. What I'm going to be doing is doing a, a divisional preview where I'm going to be interviewing fans of the other teams in the ALE. So talking to fans of the Baltimore Orioles, Toronto Blue Jays, Boston Red Sox, and the Tampa Bay Rays. And getting the perspective of the fans of those teams and the prospect for how they did last season and the prospects for this season. Maybe other players to watch out for who may uh, will come across when we play these these teams this season. First off tonight, um, I've got fans from the Boston Red Sox. This will be a person who, if you listen to other UK-based podcasts for baseball, which is a voice you will recognise extraordinarily well. Um, and also, I've got Matt Clough from the Baltimore Orioles. Both very kindly gave up 25, 30 minutes of their time. Hopefully, you'll find the interviews interesting, give you a perspective on these other teams in our division and what we might face this season. That's all. Hope you enjoy. Thanks very much. I'm now joined by Matt Clough. Um, Matt is a follower of the Baltimore Orioles. Um, Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Mark. That's all right. So, Matt, tell me a bit of all, first of all, how you got into baseball and specifically, why the Orioles? <laughs> uh, I detected a sense of kind of the disdain in that question. Perhaps, no, 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 no it, it, it's why, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, so I, um, you know, I, I've, I've always, I, as I'm sure a lot of the kind of fellow uh, British listeners will, will relate to, I've always kind of loved America in general, like, you know, the sort of the politics, the culture, um, and that led to me doing American history and literature at university, and while I was at university, um, again, as I'm sure British listeners will be well accustomed to, um, you have a lot of late nights, a lot of uh, close deadlines, and so you do find yourself up at odd, odd hours of the night. And obviously baseball is kind of the perfect sport because there are times you're able to kind of drift in and out of it and, and not pay super close attention. Um, and yeah, there's from, from sort of nine o'clock in the evening over UK time through to sort of three or four a.m. There's pretty much always a game on for you know nine months of the year, so it's it's pretty, it's a good uh, UK student sport to follow. So I, I got into it really while well I was at university, um, but I didn't really follow a team particularly. Um, and it wasn't until just as I was finishing university, I went on a, a holiday to the US, went to a few different places, went to Washington DC, went down to Florida, went to New York. Um, but the only place that I was when a corresponding kind of home team was in town was when I was in DC and it was the Orioles who obviously not not far from DC at all so I was you know a matter of potentially a couple of days scheduling away from becoming a Yankees fan or a Mets fan or a Nationals fan but as fate would have it, I became an Orioles fan because that was the first match I, uh, game I went to went to see. When was that? What kind of year so was that? That was back. It was back in 2012. So that was, um, yeah. I, I I would like to say that no matter how good or bad the Orioles were at the time, I that I would have um, I would have adopted them as my team. But obviously, that was kind of 
probably the, the peak of the Showalter era. Yeah. Um, it was it was right in that period when I think I think there was I think it was around 2010 to 2015. I think the Orioles had a run where they they had basically a five year stretch where if you took all the AL East records at that time, they were the best team. Um, and obviously there was normally one team or two teams that were better at us. You know, every given season, but in terms of consistency and performance, you know, the um, the Orioles were generally com uh, competing for the wild card at least. Um, had a few runs into the ALDS, um, and um, and then to be honest, Buck Buck left, and I can't really remember much about what's happened since. Really, I think I think it's going fine. I'm, I'm sure nothing much has. Happened of note, but let, let me remind you then of, <laughs> of, of last season, just in case your memories faded. You uh, you lost 110 games, that's quite a lot. Um, and 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 clearly, that's not dissimilar to how it's been the last couple of seasons. So, what's going on right at the moment? Why has it been so bad for a fairly extended period of time now? So I, I think towards the end of the, the Showalter era, um, obviously we, we had that, you know, what, what the, now the infamous wildcard game with Ubaldo Jimenez when who, you know, Zach Britton, who was on his, you know, historic career year, um, sorry, um, and Showalter didn't bring him into the game. I, I'm probably one of the very few Oriole fans who don't think that was the worst decision in the world and don't think it completely inexplicable. But that was kind of the last hurrah for that that core of players, really. And um, I think the old kind of the Showalter and Dan Duquette, who was the old GM, they they had quite a an old school way of approaching it um, in terms of they they just you know you, you build a team, you try and compete. That's all there is to it. You don't worry about cycles or anything like that. Um, so. That, that kind of persisted for a couple of years when the Orioles weren't very good and had a terrible farm system and didn't seem to be going anywhere. We've now obviously cleaned house. We've got Brandon Hyde in as manager and we've got uh, Mike Elias, former um, Astro kind of GM whiz kid sort of a profile. He's now um, the general manager of the Orioles and we are doing what I would <laughs> characterise as a sort of hard tank uh, slash very aggressive rebuild um and yeah i think as you say 110 loss seasons are unfortunately going to be a byproduct of that um on the flip side we've now got um what's generally ranked in the sort of top five farm systems order um, in all of baseball which is we we at one stage towards the end of the show water era we were not only one of the worst teams, oh, actually, that might be a bit fair on, unfair on uh, Buck. We, he might have left by then. But uh, at one point, we were generally pretty awful, getting nowhere in terms of actually, you know, competing and also had the worst farm system in baseball, which is obviously a, a pretty catastrophic place to be. So we've, we've very much turned the tide in terms of the farm system. And obviously, the next step is, is to try and build towards something kind of more tangible on the field. Um, the challenge is uh, obviously what, what we've seen with, with the, the Cubs and the Astros, particularly teams that have done these aggressive rebuilds in the past, is that 
obviously you want to wait for a window in which you can compete, but you also, part of it is waiting for when the teams in your division have kind of dropped off a little bit and maybe there's a, a sense that, okay, no, there's, there is not one kind of standout team we need to get past in the division. The challenge with the AL East being that you're, the Red Sox are always going to be competitive other than the odd year here and there. The Yankees are always going to be competitive. And then you've got the Rays who are just, you know, perennially somehow cobbling together these teams. And every time, every every season it starts and everyone's like, ah, probably not going to be particularly competitive. No one particularly interested in there. And then boom, 97 wins. And then, you know, we, we've had the Blue Jays for not quite company, but at least giving us some solace for the last few years. And, uh, but now I think they're, they're looking extremely threatening as well. So I think the question is, while it's tempting to say the Orioles have suffered long enough and we want to start pushing things onto the field and getting our prospects up and maybe making some trades that, that you know, help improve us, I think the big, the, you know, the $100 million question is, if we, even if we do all of this, are we going to be able to get past the four teams in the division and, and get into the playoffs, basically? It's a fair comment. I want to touch on certainly one prospect um, later, but let's sort of look at how you did last season. Because there were signs of hope on the offence, actually. You know, Cedric Mullins had a 30-30 season. That's fairly extraordinary in a team that, you know, only wins 52 games. That, that was an exceptional performance, wasn't it? And it came out of nowhere. Yeah, it, it really did. I mean, Mullins is a is a really really interesting character because he'd he's been with the Orioles for some time. He'd kind of very publicly, he'd basically been sent down to the minor leagues on a couple of occasions. He had a couple of very public spells when he'd really not not kind of underperformed, but really like hitting below one hundred for multiple games in a row, kind of levels of form where it's almost like you know what 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 is this achieving for anyone it's not helping the team it's certainly not helping the player what are we going to do about this the big difference last season was before last season he was a switch hitter and the Orioles by all accounts wanted him to keep switch hitting because obviously if you can do it well it's a it's a real attribute to have um but he came into last season and basically said, I'm, I'm not I'm not hitting right-handed anymore. It doesn't suit me. I don't like doing it. It's, you know, I, I want to focus on, on my natural uh, side, so left-handed. And just everything seemed to click for him. I think having that, getting those, you know, well, effectively doubling the amount of time he spends uh, hitting left-handed really helped him achieve some sense of rhythm. And, yeah, more power. Um, and it was a, a very classic case as well of, of once a player got got hot and and you know he tried something kind of slightly out of the box and it worked that it, you could see the confidence uh, just just kind of snowballing really so yeah it's absolutely mm-hmm. fantastic season for him and there were some other standouts offensively so you know Ryan Mountcastle I think in his first season if I might hit 33 home runs Trey Mancini who I think he's a player who we'd all effectively root for following his cancer battle. He hit 21 home runs. He's still a good player. There was hope there on, on other sides of the offence, wasn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Like you say, Mancini. So 
I should have mentioned with Mullins, he, he, he was diagnosed as well with Crohn's disease and had some operations around that. And the only reason he got tested was because, like you say, Trey Mancini had been diagnosed with uh, colon cancer earlier in that season. So he missed, uh, he came back last season and right. so he missed the entire of the season before. Um, and yeah, like you say, he, he really kind of picked up where he left off. He's you know, an above average hitter and he's spent most of his time DHing last year. Um, but yeah, he's he's a huge, obviously, fan favourite. He what he was before his his health issues, um, and even more so now. He's he's uh, he's one of those players who I think you know we might get onto this in a, in a little while. But you know, the suggestion of potentially trading him is has been has been mooted, not not kind of willingly by the fans, but he's just one of those players who now it feels like his his value to the Orioles is so outsized to what his value would be to, to any other player, basically, um, right. to, sorry, to any other team. Um, so it's, it's one of those where he's, he's a real pillar of the community. And um, yeah, like you say, it's, it's a fantastic story and we, we hope he can really, we can really push on from, from here really. So whilst offensively there was, was some signs, let's talk about the pitching. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it wasn't good. I mean, you got John Means, who um, is a good player. Was it last year he threw a new hitter? No hitter? Yes. Was that the season before? No, yeah, so, start last season. So John Means can pitch, but outside of that, you've got such luminaries as Matt Harvey, Jorge Lopez, Keegan Aiken. You've even got Dylan Tate, who used to be, I think he was the former number one pick of the Yankees, actually. Um, but outside of John Means, it's not good, is it? Yeah, no, I mean, to, to hark back to the show, show all two years again, when we were good, we were kind of, we were still a bit of an anomaly because we never really had outstanding starting pitching. We, we had a kind of mix of people like Chris Tillman, who were generally solid, but never spectacular. And then we had a bunch of players like Ubaldo, who I've already mentioned, and um, uh, Kevin Gorsman, people like that, Dylan Bundy, who clearly had potential, clearly had the stuff, but for whatever reason, found it really, really difficult to put together sustained kind of success. But that was offset by generally having one of the best bullpens in baseball. And I think that was generally what set the Orioles apart. And, you know, if you want to talk about the Rays and, and what they've been doing with the starter, I think that's kind of almost an evolution of what the Orioles were able to prove where obviously every team wants amazing starting pitchers who can go seven innings and, and give up two runs every every start but that obviously costs a lot of money and it's difficult to achieve and I think the Orioles kind of laid a bit of a blueprint um, in terms of what they were able to do with the bullpen there the as you, as you said the big the big problem we've had um recently is that the starting pitching is very much of the same mold where we've got John Means, who is, um, yeah, a, a really, really outstanding pitcher. I think he's, he's still very young in his career, but like you say, he's thrown a no-hitter. He's had a few injury problems, a few little spells where he's not quite looked himself, but when he looks good, as he did for the sort of first half of last season, he, he looks excellent. What's really been the issue is, like, other than Means, we've kind of just ended up cobbling together not just the starting pitching staff, but the entire pitching staff from yeah. complete 
just just kind of whatever we can get our hands on. So we have like like say Matt Harvey and people like Fernando Abad coming in on free agency who were, you know, best case scenario if you got sort of like yeah a hundred couple of hundred innings out of those guys and they threw at a five ERA, you'd probably be happy. And then we also had some some relatively promising young pitchers who for whatever reason last year particularly um just just completely lost their way and hopefully we're hoping we can they can find it again but people like dean kramer uh paul fry thomas eshelman a lot a lot of those guys had quite a good um, year in the shortened 2020 season when the orders we were actually we went into september almost at 500 and we actually um, had a, a series in the Bronx where it was kind of like if we can if we can pull off a win in the series here we're in with a chance of actually making the playoffs in, in probably one of the biggest upsets in modern baseball history what I actually happened well, is yes. yeah the, the Yankees kindly swept us uh, in a four game series and I think we probably won about two games for the rest of the series which left that uh, season which left us in a, in a bit of a hole and yeah, last season was a, a regression to the mean, unfortunately. Fernando Abad never was a pitcher more appropriately named, I think. <laughs> um, so I, I did a quiz last time with the with the other lads, and one question I asked was, how many runs did the Orioles concede last season? Um, oh. I don't know if you listened to that episode or not, but I, you I have a guess. Um, <laughs> I, know, uh, I know we just about hit the minus 300 run differential um to be honest by the end of the season i kind of stopped counting the individual runs for and against um i'll say about 450 956 um but uh it, it was it was the worst in the majors i'm afraid um Looking at looking at your prospects, Audley Rutschman, is he going to start, do you think, or not? Or is he going to be, sort of be held down for a little bit? Yeah, so th- this kind of harks back to what we were talking about on in terms of it's one thing rebuilding a team, but then you also try and rebuild to, to hit a certain window. I think, um, like I say, Rutschman, uh, for any of the listeners who don't know, is, uh, is a catcher. He is um, widely regarded as one of the one of the, if not the best prospect in all of baseball. Um, he's, yeah, he's, he's just basically lived up to the hype at every level he's played at. I, there, there has been some talk about whether he'll start the year on the Orioles Major League roster. I think that's probably a bit too much given he's never played in the Major Leagues before. He's nev- never fully got the call up, but I, I don't think they can realistically hold him down for very long. I think he could be a very early season call-up. Um, I think yeah, there might be a bit of service time manipulation going on there as well, because it makes no sense to bring him up too early, really. Yeah, I, I mean, they'll want to obviously hold him back for as long as possible to, to extend that window for as long as they can. But I think there comes a point when if, a, if he continues at the trajectory he's on by middle of the season, he'll just effectively be, he'll, he'll kind of plateau in AAA because he'll just be so, you know, so overmatched against what he's being put up against. Um, yeah, I, I, he's, he's obviously, for, for Orioles fans, you know, we're desperate to see him, desperate to see what he can actually do. Um, 
I do fully appreciate the front office kind of trying to, you know, there's a bit of brinksmanship going on there and trying to hold him back a little bit for the service time reasons. But yeah, I certainly think we're likely to see him, particularly as Pedro Severino, who was our, our starting catcher last year, has, has gone. So there's no one, we've got Robinson Chirinos now, but there's no one else really blocking that, that catcher spot. Mm. One thing that did interest me over the off-season that the Orioles did was they moved the fences back by about 10 feet or something like that. And I was curious as to why they did that and what, what impact do you think that might have? Was, was there some kind of rationale going on? I think they probably watched Matt Harvey pitch one too many innings in Camden Yards <laughs> last year and thought, we've got to do something about this. Um yeah, like you say, I mean, Camden Yards has always had a reputation for being a very hitter-friendly park, and the 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 barrier from the uh, left field bullpens through to the sort of centre left field um, is one of the shortest in MLB, and it's also, I think, the I think it's the shortest uh, as in lowest fence of any ballpark in MLB as well. It's really, really low, so. Basically, right. any, any any ball that still has some carry by the time it reaches the fence was pretty much going to go over it. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, they, they've moved it back a little bit and they've, they've increased the, the wall height. Um, in terms of impact, I, it, it's certainly to try and make the park a little less hitter-friendly. Um, right. not, not, nothing too radical, but I think, you know, ha- having not been privy to the uh, discussions of, that's that's led to this taking place i can only assume they've looked at the numbers and and decided that you know based on the the balance of probabilities we'd rather have a park that is slightly less friendly to hitters presumably on the basis that you know the orioles are likely to have hitters who can clear the fence wherever it is however we're also likely to have a pitching staff that aren't quite as good and could benefit from from all the help they could get, basically. So just any any kind of change like that would uh, would help. I think that's that. It was either that or kind of you know start to give the outfielders sort of novelty uh, catching gloves at a lot of times uh, beyond regulation size to try and um, yeah prevent some of the Matt Harvey antics uh, from from last year. Not that he's still with the Orioles, by the way. No, he's gone to the Angels, I think, hasn't he? So which other players should we be watching out for this season? Maybe some of those we mentioned, some we haven't. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think Mullins. It'll be fascinating to see if he can if he can carry on. Um, I think Mancini again. We. It would be fantastic if he can keep going. I think in terms of training to prospects, I as I mentioned earlier, I think the his value to the Orioles is is kind of so outsized compared to his value to any other teams. I'd be surprised if he got traded. I think the the only real situation where that arises is if he gets really, really hot before the trade deadline and a, a playoff contending team is really struggling for that DH first base position and they, they want a power hitter. And then, yeah, John Means, as, as we've touched on already, he he has, when, when he's on, when as he was at the start of last season, he has the potential to be one of the, I mean, I, I don't want to get, too overexcited and start, start comparing him to the real sort of, you know, the heavy hitters like your Kershaws and your Scherzers, but, and your Garrett Coles, I'll make my obligatory mention of him on the Yankees podcast, but um, I, I think he could be a real, real um, 
a star basically and I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some serious trade talk around him um, come sort of the trade deadline and then in terms of the, the prospects as you say Rutschman I expect to see him this year we've also got I think the highest placed pitching prospects um, Grayson Rodriguez and another pitcher prospect who um, has, has really lit up spring training called DL Hall who um, they're, they're both I, I think I'm right in saying neither of those have actually managed to uh, pitch in AAA yet, so they're, they're probably a little way away. But, mm. you know, I, I think one, well, probably Hall rather than Rodriguez, um, it's possible we see him. And he's currently a starter, so it will be interesting to see if he can sort of survive the, uh, the, the Orioles tradition, baptism and fire for, for pitchers and actually become a starter, as Means has. Okay. So thanks for that, Matt. What what would like doing with all of these is trying to wrap them up with a kind of divisional predictions. Where do you where do you think who's gonna come first, second, third, fourth, fifth in the AL East this season? What we think each team's gonna rank. I mean, I can start with the Orioles because that's that's probably the easiest. Clearly, you know, the World Series is is the target there for, for probably, them, so. yeah. <laughs> now, um yeah, I'll go. I'll go. Orioles fifth, um, and yeah, hope for if, if we can honestly at this stage a sub one hundred loss season would be a result in my opinion. Yeah. That, that would be a a move, a significant move in the right direction. So, uh, looking at the roster right now, I'm not entirely sure how that's going to happen, but you know, stranger things have happened. I think fourth, um, I'd say the Red Sox. I, I'm not entirely convinced that what we saw last year wasn't a bit of a flash in the pan and they obviously had a very hot start which then kind of regressed um, a little bit towards the end they sort of ran out of a bit of steam um, but they did quite, quite well in the playoffs um, uh, third I, I will have to say the Yankees I'm afraid um, just it's okay. yeah I just because, and it's mainly, it's not so much the Yankees, it's the other two teams that I've yet to say. The Rays, as we've mentioned, every single season, they seem to get kind of massively talked down in everyone's predictions. And I, I was looking at Fangraph's predictions earlier, and they're sort of saying the Rays are going to be like a 86-win team, which is a, obviously a huge drop, given they won 100, well, over 100 games last, last year. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I can see them doing it. And then yeah, first I I really like the Blue Jays. They're they're looking pretty. I I, I don't like them. I don't want them to play the Orioles at all this year, to be honest. But in terms of their prospects of uh, of reaching you know the playoffs and beyond, I, I think they're looking like the real deal. Um, if if they can keep all of their sort of their their stars fit, basically. No, I mean, I, I think I can agree with you. I can very much see a situation where those top four are quite even and it, it could go either way for them. Um, unfortunately, I do see the Orioles myself finishing fifth. Um, <laughs> but maybe maybe we'll do this in a few years' time and you'll be talking about uh, with a bit more positivity about your side. So, Matt, that's been great. Thanks. Before we came on, you were talking about how um, you've written some books. You want to maybe sort of talk about those briefly about what kind of books you've written? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my my first book, which is uh, out, uh, came out a couple of years ago and was, uh, was nominated for a couple of awards, um, 
It's a biography of a footballer called Nat Lofthouse, who, if any of your uh, listeners aren't familiar with football, he, he was a, a bit of an England legend. He, he retired as uh, England's top goal scorer of all time. He, he played during the 1950s. Um, the Lion of Vienna. The Lion of Vienna, yeah. And just generally lived quite a, a fascinating life. Um, and... Yeah, I, I don't. To be honest, I don't. I'm, I'm struggling to think of a baseball crossover for for Nat. But um, <laughs> my uh, and I've got a book coming out in November, which is about the um, the Hungary um, versus England match, which happened in 1953, um, which was was billed as the match of the century. England were the sort of almost like the the Yankees of of their of international football. They were, you know, had a had a huge reputation, even if perhaps. At that point, they 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 hadn't really done much to earn it. They're, they're kind of the sheen had worn off, and then they yeah they played Hungary and uh, spoiler alert it did not go well for England. And I think from a um, for anyone who's interested in, in the kind of in the moneyball aspect of, of baseball and then the way that baseball's kind of gone from being this extremely traditional and um, you know historically deferential sport which hadn't really changed for you know over 130 years and then suddenly we're you know we're being introduced to sort of sabermetrics and things like the shift and all of that kind of thing I think there's stuff in that book that that might be interesting um, because Hungary's great advantage as well as having a, a, a really good team was was effectively they they had coaches who looked at the game looked at the fact that England hadn't really adapted their tactics for about 70 years and basically thought, why not? And had, had you know, effectively moneyballed their way into, into success and they, they nearly won the World Cup and everything like that as well. So, um, and yeah, like we touched on as well, there, there's, there's also lots of stuff at the moment. Um, not so much with, with baseball, but in terms of in terms of football and sort of geopolitics at the moment, there's uh, a lot of stuff out there at the moment with the idea of sports washing and and regimes and, and people using using sport and sporting success for kind of nefarious soft power means, and that that is echoed in the book quite heavily because Hungary were um, in the they weren't technically a part of the Soviet Union, but they were certainly in the orbit in the orbit of the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union was very keen to seize upon the team and uh, and use them as a, a propaganda tool when it suited them so there, there's a lot of discussion of that in there as well that's, that's fascinating that's out in November I'll look, I'll look out it for is, that. Yeah. definitely Matt that's been great it, it was really interesting to hear from a real life Orioles fan. There's not too many of you in the UK. So I'm really pleased that we found one. Thanks for coming and you know giving such a good insight on a team that we don't hear too much about. Um, but the best to look this season. Um, <laughs> Thank you very much. I hope, I, hope, I hope you take some pleasure in watching them this season. And maybe maybe you will win more than 62 games and get below that 100 loss season. That'll be good. Yeah, I think if, if we can if we can end the season and look at the table and think at least one of those teams we we ruin their season as well as ruining our own. I think that will be that will suit the Orioles. I don't. I'm not saying who we want to ruin the season off, but. It would any any team just just tripping them up just for against the playoffs. I think a lot of Orioles fans would take that. Well, and, and so would we as long as it's not us. So <laughs> Matt, thanks for that. It's been great. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you very much.